Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. In the first century of this common era, writing materials were scarce and very expensive. Papyrus came from Egypt, but it was very expensive to make, and transportation costs made it prohibitive for the average person. They were more inclined to write on pieces of animal skin, specially treated and prepared, but even those were expensive. So if one was going to write some long document, one would choose very carefully what to write and what to leave out. By the time the four Gospels were written, we know that many stories were circulating around these various disciples who had moved away from Jerusalem after the dispersion had occurred. Uh, by the time the Gospels got written, the oldest of them at least 40 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord, and the last one probably 70 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord, the writers were choosing the materials. This story, I think, tells it better. No, I think this one. No, I think another. There's only one miracle story about Jesus told in all four Gospels. Most of the time we combine the four. We talk about the seven last words of Jesus. No writer has all seven sentences. You have to read all four Gospels to get the seven sentences. In my Sunday school class, we're dealing with the Gospel of John right now. He has only two of the seven. You have to read all four if you're going to get all seven. And so with the stories about Jesus. We have four for a reason. But we are looking now at Matthew's account. He told this story about the feeding of 5,000, as did the other three. But Matthew told it in the way he thought conveyed best the great truths there. I've underlined four of them. Number one, when Jesus heard this, he went away to a deserted place. When he heard what? You need to go back and read the very end of the chapter before. And what has occurred in the chapter immediately before is a big party thrown by Herod Antipas down at one of his palaces called Machaerus. Lots of eating, far too much drinking, a sensuous dance, a scheming, and a saying to the king, we want John's head on a platter. John was Jesus' cousin. He loved John, respected and admired his work, had walked some 90 miles to be baptized by John and 90 miles home again. And now word came to him that this drunken mob at Mac 
Zacharias had had his cousin put to death, beheaded. What did he do? Did he say, let's see, I know some people in the Zealot party. If I had the right 20 of them, we could surround that palace, we could get in through the windows, and we could kill the king, Salome, and her mother all at one fell swoop. But he was not Tony Soprano. He was not Michael Corleone. Neither was he Alexander the Great nor Napoleon. This Messiah whom God had sent withdrew to a desert place to pray. Now, I've been to the Sea of Galilee five times, and I can tell you there is no desert at the Sea of Galilee. Matthew is using a word here that he knows will trigger in people's minds another setting. The desert is just south of Jerusalem, and one gets to the southern city limit of Jerusalem, one enters the desert, not up at the Sea of Galilee, 90 miles north. It's green, by and large, beautiful. Matthew uses a word, eremos, that is used 92 times in the scrolls of Exodus and Deuteronomy to describe the place where Moses and the children of Israel lived for 40 years. After they were freed from the Egyptians, after they had crossed the sea, after they had received the Ten Commandments, they had 40 years in the wilderness. But they would look back 1,200 years later and remember that as a time when in their difficulties they were closest to God. Dr. Barbara Rossing is a professor at the Lutheran Seminary in Chicago. She has recently written a book called The Rapture Exposed. Now, if you have neighbors who've read all the Left Behind books and have gone to all the movies, you might want to read Dr. Rossing's book, The Rapture Exposed. She has a very good education, master's degree from Harvard Divinity School, Ph.D., Yale Divinity School, wrote her doctoral dissertation on the rapture and the Left Behind books. Those of us who've gone to our mainline seminaries, the 13 United Methodist seminaries, along with great schools like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Union of New York, etc., we all know the hoax of all those books and those stories. You see, that really came out of one man's mind more than 150 years ago who distorted the book of Daniel, distorted one of the verses in 1 Thessalonians, and distorted the first 20 chapters of Revelation to come up with this fabrication of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back again. Because you see, those ultra-conservative folk, they really believe Jesus didn't get it right the first time, and that he will the next. That next time he will ride the Black Stallion, next time he will be Alexander the Great, next time he will be Napoleon, next time he will be Tony Soprano or Marco Corleone, he'll deal with the enemies, he'll organize the zealots. Not so... If one reads the last two chapters of Revelation, does not stop with chapter 20, but read 21 and 22, one discovers this is not a God who wants to leave anybody behind. This is not a God who raptures people away. This is a God who comes to them to spend eternity with them, where there's plenty of water, plenty of food, and there is peace for all. Dr. Rossing concludes in her book, You know what? 
the way Jesus came the first time is the way he's going to come the next time. And he will be the same, and the way he lives will be the same. He didn't organize the opposition. He withdrew to a deserted place. Number two, some people saw him. They saw him leaving, and they told others, and soon there was a crowd. When he had taught and preached and healed them, late in the day the disciples said to Jesus, it's time to let these people go now. They have nothing to eat. They need to go and buy food. They are in a deserted place. Here's the word again. Matthew is not just picking words at random. He's carefully choosing. And he's saying Jesus went to that desert place and now the crowd is in that desert place and it's very much as it was before. Will God feed us when we are hungry? Will God feed us? In May, Gail and I were again in Italy. It's one of our favorite places. It's the home of Gail's ancestry, of course. But I enjoy it every bit as much as she does. One can hardly go anywhere in Italy that one does not hear the name or see some plaque or statue of Dante Alighieri. Dante Alighieri lived more than 700 years ago. He was born in the late 1200s, lived only 56 years the reason so many places claim Dante slept here, Dante ate here, is that he was in exile the last 20 years of his life. As a young man in his early 30s, he had achieved no notoriety. Uh, he was a poet trying to make a living as a poet, but great people of art have often starved during their lifetimes. Uh, there's not a great amount of money out there for most poets, and there was not for him. He tried being a local politician, and someone sent word to the Pope in Rome that he was a troublemaker. His name was placed on the list with 368 other persons who were going to be arrested. Now you have to remember that the great Roman Empire had fallen. Western Europe had gone into the Dark Ages. And coming out of those Dark Ages, the Pope and his armies were very strong. And if the Pope decided you were not a nice person. You could spend the rest of your life in prison or be executed. And Dante Alighieri ran. He ran. And he lived all over Italy the next 20 years. And as he moved from place to place in hiding, he wrote. Eventually, writing 14,000 lines of poetry that came to be known as the Divine Comedy. In this long work, he said that all of us face our hell on earth, the inferno, he called it in Italian, inferno. That we must somehow deal with our past, our purgatorio. All of us go to our purgatorio where we must make amends in whatever ways we can, when we can make right the wrongs in whatever way we can, if we're ever going to come to paradiso. The best known part of his work probably is the Inferno, where he says that all of the great problems in the world have resulted in our misplaced values. We've put far too much value in things that aren't so valuable, and we've put too little value in things that really do count. And so one must make changes, one must redress 
address those problems that can be addressed, make amends where amends can be made in order that one may finally move through purgatorio to paradiso. Ten days after we were in Italy, Gail and I were in London. One of the places she had circled that she wanted to see very much this time was the home of Charles Dickens. We had a wonderful morning there. We've seen A Christmas Carol over and over and over. We've seen Oliver several times and, of course, have read of Dickens and in Dickens. Dickens loved the writings of Dante Alighieri, and A Christmas Carol picks up on the three major themes. Old Ebenezer Scrooge is in a hell on earth. He is an old man without being close to anyone in the world. He has a living nephew. He's not close to him. He has no spouse. He has no children. He has devoted himself to work, period, all of his life. People mock him. They laugh behind his back. He's stingy. He's cheap. He's unloved. He must deal with the ghost of Christmas's past that had brought him to this place, his inferno. He must somehow move into purgatorio. He must somehow deal with things he can deal with. The ghost of Christmas present comes to him. A Christmas present. He deals with the future. Is there any hope of paradiso? He sees his own grave. He sees people mocking and scoffing who are so glad that he's gone, who are stripping his bedroom of anything, whatever, of value. They hate him, detest him. He keeps asking, but is this inevitable? Is this what has to be, or is this only what might be? Is it inevitable that Tiny Tim will die, or is it possible that we could find medical care for Tim? You see, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso. Dante was never pardoned. Never pardoned. He was in exile all of his life. But he wrote from the desert, the deserted place of his own life, to others who could read and understand and make significant changes in their own. He believed he was caught up in the divine tragedy and instead discovered he was born into a divine comedy. That there was a joy, there was a happiness in life, no matter what the circumstances you'd been dealt. Number three. Jesus said to the people, sit down on the grass. Well, that's not what he said to them. He said, lie down on the grass. Our translators say sit down because that's what we normally do when we get ready to eat. But it wasn't the case in Jesus' time. They reclined while they ate. The picture that comes into our mind of the Last Supper is da Vinci's picture. And he pictured them as they would have eaten in his time in Rome or in Florence. Uh, in some other place in Milano where this beautiful work is. But in Jesus' time, people reclined while they ate. Pointing the feet away from the table, leaning on one elbow and diving in with the other hand. And that's what he says to them. Lie down on the grass. Or as Dr. Edward Schweitzer says in his commentary, Jesus was saying, are you hungry? Get ready to eat. This is the Messianic banquet. Something very special is about to happen. Get ready to eat. And then he assumed the role of a Jewish father. As a Jewish father stood at the head of his table every night, so Jesus lifts the element, the bread, these fish, 
He looked to heaven as a Jewish father is instructed to do and blesses what he has. Addressing the father of the Jews, his father, you are in my father, our Abba. These verbs are so important here. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. You will hear all four of them at Vespers if you come to communion tonight. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Matthew will use exactly the same verbs in Greek when he comes to the Passover meal that Jesus celebrates with the disciple. This is like the Holy Eucharist, except this is so special. Everybody ate their fill. Will he provide manna? Manna was for one day and no more. In a sense, ours is for one day also, but it's more than enough. Twelve baskets full left over after everyone had eaten their fill. In the Messianic age, those who've been hungry will have more than enough. It will be a time of extravagance. Mike Long is our Methodist preacher out in Roswell. And Mike recently wrote of something he had read in a newspaper account. There's a large publishing house here in our country that uh, routinely sends out uh, reminders to people that they need to renew their magazine subscription. It's all set up on the computer. And as each new day trips into the computer, it knows that this many people need to receive a reminder today and it mails them out. On one particular day, as the day began, the computer data showed that 9,734 reminders needed to be sent out that day. But something went wrong. Instead of sending a reminder to 9,734 people, it sent 907,734 reminders to one person. And he was a rancher in a remote area of Colorado. And when he walked out to his mailbox and saw these huge sacks of mail lying there by the mailbox, he couldn't believe his eyes, gathered them up, took them to his house, started going through them, and found that he had 9,734 reminders, all exactly the same. And so he wrote out his check. He drove miles to the nearest post office, put a stamp on it, dropped it in the slot. But what he had written inside was, I'll take the magazine, I give up. And then Mike said to his people out in Roswell, the God you and I know or ought to know is the one who just keeps reminding us. Keeps reminding us in your desert places when you are really hungry, thirsty, hurt. He will feed you He will feed you. You can count on that. Number four. One of the scholars I read this week said, but don't enjoy this story so much that you miss a key line. There's an imperative verb there when Jesus looks at his own disciples and said, give them something to eat. In fact, F.W. Bear says this is an emphasized word, it literally says, you yourselves feed them. Feed them. My most recent Newsweek magazine had a story about a ceremony in Washington 
a 93-year-old man had just been awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Uh, years ago, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and some years ago, uh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. One of only five people in history to receive all three of those awards. And I would wager you do not know his name. Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug. 93 years ago, he was born in a rural area in Iowa, a poor farming family. He was a teenager when the Great Depression hit, but he wanted to go to college. He applied at the University of Minnesota School of Agriculture. He was turned down. They felt he did not have enough high school credits in the right subjects. And so he worked hard to remedy that and applied again and was admitted to the University of Minnesota. By the time he was in his 30s, he had figured out what God had sent him to do. It was to feed hungry people. And the closest huge numbers of hungry people were in Mexico. So he went south to Mexico. A trained and well-educated agronomist, he began to hybridize plants in Mexico, gradually working season after season to come up with a better strain of wheat that would grow in Mexico, bringing the very latest advances in, in fertilizers of different kinds. Within 10 years, he had a wheat plant that was generating three times the amount of wheat produced before. He fed three times more people than had ever been fed in Mexico before. The Rockefeller Foundation heard about his work. They asked him if he would be willing to go to Pakistan and India and duplicate his efforts. He went. He entered into this painstakingly slow way of changing a plant season by season, gradually finding ways to make this plant better and better. And whereas he had brought a threefold better plant to Mexico, the one he developed for Pakistan and India was sevenfold what they had had before. Then he was asked if he would go to China. Not a quick process. It takes years and years to train the people and to hybridize these plants to the point that they do best in that particular climate. He had his greatest success in China. And finally, now that he's 93, he's gotten funding to go to Africa and attack this continent where there is more hunger today than any other. Back in 1960, fellows like Paul Erling were writing books that by the year 2000, we would all be killing each other because we would all be starving to death. In 1960, 60% of the world's population were going to bed, at least parts of the year, hungry. It was not the right time for their meager crops or the migration patterns of birds and animals, so that 60% of the world's people were going to bed hungry at some time during the year. And because of Norman Borlaug, Newsweek magazine says, one billion people have been fed and their lives have been saved. The article said he has saved a billion people. In 1960, 60% hungry. In 2000, only 14%. 14%. Which means that Norman has fed a billion. That just leaves 850 million for you and me. 